Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank you for your word and we ask that you would open our hearts to hear and to receive and to be uh, challenged and transformed, that you would shape us and grow us more and more like you, Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. Last week we began a new series on the book of Daniel. And Daniel predominantly tells the story of Daniel and his friends seeking to live faithfully for God while living under a foreign empire. And then the second half of the book is Daniel's visions about the future, which we'll get to uh, in a couple weeks. Last week we talked about how God gives. God gave Judah over to Babylon because of their sin. And God also gave wisdom and understanding to Daniel as he was seeking to live out his faith while surrounded by those who do not believe in God. And he's seeking to navigate what it means to live faithfully for God in that context. And we talked about how God, just as he was faithful to Daniel, God is faithful in our lives as well. And in the moments where we may feel we are in captivity, or when we feel we're trying to live for God in a society or a culture that opposes God, God is still good. He still has his hand upon us. He's still at work in the world, and we can trust in him. God gives, and God is still good. So that was last week. Now we're into chapter 2, and we're introduced to one of the main characters of the book, which is King Nebuchadnezzar. He's had this disturbing dream, and so he summons his various assorted magical officials. It's a whole litany, right? His enchanters, the sorcerers, the magicians, basically anyone, anyone with any kind of inkling, uh, they, they get brought in before the king. Dreams in the ancient world were often considered meaningful and likely portents of the future. And the king's dreams were especially significant because, of course, it could affect the whole nation if the king is dreaming of something to come. And so often kings would want to hear the interpretations of their dreams, and then they would take steps to try to ensure that prophetic thing came true, or they would take steps to try to make sure that prophetic thing did not come true, right? Kind of resist the dream. Now, what does this remind us of right off the bat? A king has a dream and is seeking interpretation, and no one around seems to know the answer. It sounds a lot like pharaoh in egypt right in a similar situation where pharaoh has disturbing dreams and and seems to think they're important for the future and tries to seek out interpretation and just like in genesis in that passage the various magical team are useless at deciphering the dream now to make matters worse nebuchadnezzar then makes a really serious threat so contrary to the normal procedure you would often tell the dream, and then the magical committee would meet and give their interpretation to you. But that's not what King Nebuchadnezzar does. He says, no, you have to both tell me what the dream was, so I know you're right, and tell me the interpretation. I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You got to tell me that and interpret it for me. And if you get it right, you will be rewarded. And if you don't get it right, uh, I'm going to destroy your house and tear you limb from limb. So it's no pressure. You got this, right? 
It's interesting how Nebuchadnezzar, he operates in the only world he really seems to know, which is through power and domineering and bloodshed and the sense of almost destructive tyranny. He's, always dis- he's already displaying his, his true colors, not unlike Pharaoh and other evil kings that have arisen in Israel's story throughout the scriptures. And the magicians and the sorcerers are quite stunned that Nebuchadnezzar is suggesting this, right? Look at their words in verse 11. They say, the thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And in response to that, Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage and orders that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed, which includes not just the magicians, but also likely a wider circle of sort of scholarly or learned people. And that includes Daniel and his friends who are still likely studying for their Babylonian literature degrees on their vegan diet, right, from from last chapter. So they get roped into this as well. In Nebuchadnezzar, we see the tendencies of those who enter into leadership or a measure of power but don't have a sort of strength of character to do it well. And Nebuchadnezzar has an empire. He's obviously militarily successful, but we see major flaws in his character and his willingness to sort of throw life away uh, willy-nilly, whatever he feels, right? He's unhinged. And he's unreasonable in the expectations of his subjects. And it's interesting, the magicians in verse 11 actually speak probably truer than they realize, right? Look at verse 11 again. The thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods. There's a recognition that, no, we can't figure it out. There needs to be divine revelation for us to get this. And then they say, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And for those of us who have read through the New Testament, and especially Jesus' incarnation as Christians, this side of the cross, it's a, it's a stark reminder that they do not yet know the true and living God whose glory fills the heavens and who dwells with the humble. And that Jesus himself will actually be the true God who makes his dwelling among those in flesh, right? And so they, they're off to a false start, and we can see that their expectations of what the gods will do fall far short of the glory of the true God who actually enters into our humanity to rescue us in Jesus. So, so this first section of the text, it really highlights kind of the folly and the evil and the, the anger of Nebuchadnezzar. We're seeing his prideful tendencies. He assumes the dream means something, which is good, but he's so firm with the magicians that they're afraid to, to lose their lives to getting it wrong. And so in crisis, the king, the king seeks an answer outside of himself using basically the lure of greed, right? I'm going to give you this reward if you can do this. This is a motive he likely knows well. And if they can't answer, he's just going to destroy something anyway. And I was thinking, it made me reflect on moments in my own life where anger has gotten the better of me. Where I've, I, I've not thrown into a murderous rage where I sought to throw out my magical counsel. I don't have a magical counsel. But I think all of us have likely had moments where our, our anger or our frustration just gets the better of us. 
and and I don't it may not may not be a throwing uh, you know going into a vocal outrage like Nebuchadnezzar, but it could be a deep seated frustration or that sort of of simmering resentment that turns into bitterness towards someone or towards people or towards a, an institution, whatever that might be. I know I need to watch my anger with my kids, that if I'm particularly angry about something that I don't put it, you know, take it out on them, that I'm not lashing it out on them, especially if they don't deserve that at all, that it's just touching on something deeper in dad because dad's already frustrated with something else over here and and their, you know, disobedience and my reaction to that are, are not not really uh, appropriate for, for the measure of their not listening, right? And I need to be careful that I don't let my own impatience or my own frustration get the better of me in those moments. And I'm sure we've all been in those moments where we have to sort of check our own hearts and often, often fail to do that well, right? I think also we can... We can certainly be angry at injustices in the world. We can long for God to come and set things right. And we can get riled up about that issue or that issue that's, that is just so obviously sinful and broken. Um, and we can, be, we can have sort of a righteous anger to see things, see justice prevail or see things made well. But we need to be careful that that doesn't turn into a sort of self-righteous attitude or a hatred towards others, right? The Bible has a lot to say about our character. It has a lot to say about how we live our lives. And as I was thinking about this, this message, I looked up some passages just about anger, just to remind myself of some of the things that the Bible teaches. Psalm 37.8 says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. I like the way that's worded. Fret not yourself. Like, don't, don't rile your own self up. It tends only to evil. Isn't that true? When we get riled up about something, we can tend to respond really poorly. Proverbs twelve nineteen says, and this really sounds like Nebuchadnezzar, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Well, I'm angry that the magicians won't give me the answer, so I'm just going to kill everybody. Right? Like, really? Sure, some of those people were probably helpful. No, we'll just take them all out, right? Ecclesiastes says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. And here's the, here's the key for us. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Anger can sit there in our hearts and just sort of simmer. And can lead us to make foolish decisions. And I'm just as guilty as the next person. In contrast to that, I was thinking of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will keep your paths straight. Nebuchadnezzar's really far from that at this point. But if he were to trust God the path would become straight for him. If he would lean not on his own understanding, if he acknowledged God and kept him first in his heart, he would begin to see the way forward. And how true is that in our own lives as well? It can feel easy to center in on our anger or our frustration at this person or that person, 
if this medical procedure didn't happen the way it was supposed to or it wasn't coming quick enough or I got this news or that news or that person said this thing this way or this family member responded that way. We can let that stuff just sit in us. Or we can lean not on our own understanding and acknowledge God is good. He's got this. He'll keep my path straight. I'm going to trust in him rather than living in a place of my own anger. And so it's interesting that sort of counter to Nebuchadnezzar's anger, we get a picture then of Daniel and how he responds to this situation. So into this storm, Daniel sends, or God sends the young prophet. And notice, we actually get a mention of Daniel's attitude in verse 14. Depends on the translation you have. But Daniel, once he hears about the decree to take out the wise men, finds Arioch and replies, it says, verse 14, with prudence and discretion. Now, I, would, I could understand that if the king said, we're just taking out every wise man ever, you could get pretty angry about that or just really scared. But Daniel replies with prudence and discretion. That's in the ESV. If you're reading the NIV, it says he replies with wisdom and tact, which means he's able to measure his words, right, to speak tactfully be thoughtful about how he responds to it. And so in contrast to the rage of the king, we have Daniel displaying a different sort of character. And that's worth noting because in the last chapter it was all about Daniel's own self-identity. He's been renamed. He's been put on a different sort of diet. He's been put into an educational program. Is he going to become more like a Babylonian or is he going to be a faithful Israelite? Is he going to take on the character of the king of Babylon, or is he going to take on the character of the king of Israel, who is God? Whose character will he display? Whose image will he bear? Will he bear the image of the angry king, or will he bear the image of the loving God and live out his character in the world? And what we see is Daniel's choosing the way of the people of God in a difficult situation. He's acting with prudence and wisdom, and he's uh, imaging God's character in a difficult situation and in a different country, bringing God's wisdom to bear, wisdom regarding the dream interpretation, but also he's, he's extending God's grace. He doesn't want to see all these wise men killed for basically no reason, right? And so he takes Arioch aside, the captain of the guard, and says, what's going on? Why this all of the sudden? And Arioch fills him in. And then comes a rather surprising turn in the story in verse 16, Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. I don't know if you caught that on the first reading, but Daniel schedules an appointment with the king and he doesn't have an interpretation yet. He's got nothing. He's got nothing to bring to the table. But he sets up an appointment. He doesn't even have the answer yet. He's putting himself in a position where he has to actively rely on God to come through for him. And so he sets up an appointment even though he has nothing to say. I mean, he's going to get killed anyway. So you could say on one hand, well, what's he have to lose? He might as well try something, right? But even so, Daniel shows a remarkable faith and sometimes I think when situations arise or opportunities arise, we don't know what to do. It can just feel paralyzing. 
we can feel totally stuck, and yet God still calls us to act and to live faithfully for him, even when it's difficult. And Daniel begins to move forward and to act faithfully, even though he doesn't have all the answers, but he, he responds. He responds out of a deep-seated trust in God that God will see him through. And then Daniel does something else that's really important. Does he immediately just go off by himself and start praying that God gives him the answer? No. What's he do? Verse 17, in this life-or-death situation, Daniel goes and finds his friends. He goes back to his house. He tells his companions and asks them to start praying that God will reveal the answer so they won't be destroyed. It made me think, do you have... Do you have good friends that you can turn to when things are really rough? Do you have people that you can call when the news comes in and you just need to, to unload on somebody? And if you don't have those relationships, I encourage you to begin to cultivate good fellowship, a good relationship, a good friendship with another Christian, another brother or sister, in Christ, someone you can turn to when you need prayer, when things are, are difficult, someone who, who knows you and understands and they'll just listen and pray with you. Don't head into that battle alone. Don't come before the king on your own wisdom and your own strength, but instead surround yourself with prayerful friends and together go to God and, and confide in the company of those who care for you who will together seek the Lord for his wisdom and his revelation. I have some friends from Bible school that I know I can just pick up where we left off. I could just show up and off we go. And it's, you know, it's one of those relationships where there's, there's not a lot of expectation. It's not like we phone each other all the time or we text all the time, but I know if I phoned and said, hey, I'm coming through, can I stay? Absolutely, and off we go. And it's, it's so good to have that. We can pick off, pick up where we left off, that sense of family and community. And I encourage you to take that time to invest in those relationships. <clears throat> in fact, I was just reading uh, an article recently about young people leaving the church. And one of the primary reasons that young people leave the church in their 20s is because they don't feel that they have a personal relationship with someone in the church. They don't feel like they actually have a deep friendship with other Christians, and that often it's that deep friendship that will keep people connected to communities and help them then navigate uh, when there's a crisis of faith and questions about God and whatnot, because there's a relationship there. I was talking to someone just a couple weeks ago, and they were saying how important it was that people, in, it was regarding someone who's in this church, and they were saying it was so important that, and they named two people in our congregation, um, that they that they reached out to me that first Sunday that I showed up. And they actually took me for coffee or took me for lunch. And, and that was like, that still stuck with him. You know, 10, 15 years later, he was saying that that was the reason I kept coming back because I knew someone actually cared for me and loved me. And all that's not just my job. I mean, I do my best to try and connect with people, but, but that's something all of us can extend to each other is that ministry of friendship and hospitality, of welcoming one another. And I encourage you to find people that you can pray with, especially when things get tough, just like Daniel needs here. 
And then we get to verse 19, and it's so funny, without any fanfare at all, we just read that the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. We get way more of a description of Daniel talking to Arioch, get scheduling a meeting with the king's secretary for the next day, hanging out with his friends and praying with them, and then we just get a short little bloop, and then, you know, then the mystery was revealed to him. Oh, okay. Almost like, well, that was easy, right? We get way more, in, way more input on what Daniel does than on uh, some sort of very intense moment where the revelation is revealed to him, right? It's interesting we're not told about some kind of special prayer Daniel prayed. There's no kind of magic formula to get it sorted out. It's not like Daniel has to jump on one foot or meditate a certain way. We, we get none of that. There's nothing, right? The Bible emphasizes Daniel has a relationship with God and trusts him, and God comes through, period. This is not about God the genie being, you know, manipulated to respond in a particular way. No, no, Daniel simply walks in faith, gets an appointment with the king, prays together with his friends, and then what does he do? He goes to bed. It's revealed to him in the night. Daniel gets the answer when he's not striving for it. Isn't that interesting? Daniel goes to bed. He's not trying to do some weird thing. He's in relationship with God. He trusts in him. That's it. And having done what he can, he's told his friends, they're praying, he's prayed, he goes to bed, and in that place of resting, trusting that God will do his part, the dream's revealed. God reveals the dream. So when difficult situations come in your life, and this is a question for me as much as any of us, do we tend to be more like Nebuchadnezzar who gets angry and frustrated and demands answers from people and can't sleep, right? That was one of the first things that we read is, is sleep's disturbed. Or do we, do we try to be like Daniel who is concerned about the situation, but he seeks God's wisdom and mercy and then goes to his friends for prayer and then is able to rest in the assurance that God's got it. And notice how both of them deal with people. Nebuchadnezzar tries to use people for his own ends. They're just projects. They're just servants that he can dehumanize. But Daniel treats people like people. In fact, he asks his friends to pray so that the other wise men can be spared. Hang on a second. The other wise men are his enemies. They're the bad guys. They're the foreign nation that entered Judah and took them away. Where else have we seen, and this is, again, Daniel's character on display, where else have we seen someone go off to pray, ask his friends to pray so that his enemies can be spared from death? That sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus asks his friends to pray and then goes off by himself to seek the Lord so that even his enemies could be saved. Daniel's displaying God's character. And it's easy to imagine, well, I'm like Daniel. I want to be like Daniel. I think far too often I'm probably like Nebuchadnezzar. I'm fearful and I'm anxious and I get angry and I just feel broken. But Jesus, but Jesus, 
Jesus shows us that even while we were still sinners, when we are far more like Nebuchadnezzar than we wish to admit, when we are full of our own sin and evil and selfishness, when we were like that, Jesus still loved us and died for us so that we, even his enemies, would have the opportunity to come and to repent and to find forgiveness and salvation and life. And that's worth celebrating. And it's fitting then that the passage ends with celebration, with Daniel's own song of praise that's highlighting God's character, that he's wise, that he's mighty, that he's sovereign over world events, including the world leaders, that he knows the times and seasons, that he's generous in giving wisdom and knowledge, and we can come to him in our time of need and thank him for his intervention when we face struggles and difficulty in our lives. See, Daniel has a faith in God that's grown through the years so that when situations arise, when he's in need, he can go to his friends, he can faithfully respond by making an appointment with the king, even though he doesn't have the answers, and he can wait prayerfully before the Lord, knowing that he'll give Daniel what he needs in that moment. And so for you today, don't wait until some difficulty comes for you to cultivate a faith in God. Let it be something you are growing in daily, where you are getting to know him, trusting in him and delighting in him, and you're growing in that relationship with God and in relationship with others so that when some difficulty comes in life, and it will come, there is then a deep reservoir to draw on of faith, of knowing who God is, of having friends who are praying, and knowing that God's grace and his provision will far outmatch the anger and the threats of worldly kings or the fears and the troubles that rest in our own hearts. And so in Daniel, we see that sort of life and character that we as disciples of Jesus are called also to embody a life of gentleness and patience and courage. And that's how Daniel responds to the tyrant king. So put your faith in the God who saves us, in the one who laid down his life even while we were still sinners, and cultivate good relationships and friendships with others that you too can act faithfully when difficulty comes. And you can trust in the grace and the provision of God, who is alone the true and good king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we thank you this morning that uh, you do hold us and keep us in the trials that we face in life. That you go before us. That you do come and fill us. Lord, that you have defeated sin and death and we can rest in the assurance and the grace and the freedom that that brings to our lives. Lord, we thank you that in this passage we are uh, potentially convicted, Lord, of, of the moments in our lives, the tendencies in our own hearts where we, we tend towards being more like Nebuchadnezzar, where we give in to our own angers. And, and Lord, it may not be a violent outrage, but Jesus, you know the places in our hearts where it's easy for us to get bitter. 
or resentful. And Father, I just pray that you would help us to keep our own angers in check, which really stems from a place of fear so often, Lord. Our fears of what might happen if we're not in control or or our worst-case scenarios. And Father, we just pray that you would help us to trust and rely on you, even when we don't have all the answers, just like Daniel does, Lord. Lord, I pray for those who maybe feel they're walking alone, and I just ask today that you would help us to cultivate good friendships with another brother or sister in Christ, maybe a mentor, maybe someone who's older than us that can, that can give us wisdom and, and experience and, and walk with us. Uh, through life. I pray you'd help us to, to uh, cultivate those relationships, to find that person or those few people that we can uh, do life together with. And Father, I do pray that you would help us to uh, trust in you, to rest uh, in our striving, to know that you hold us and you've got us our families and our marriages and our work situations and our school situations, our own uh, issues in our own lives. Father, we pray that you would continue to do a work in us, that you would guide our hearts and, and help us to live faithfully for you, particularly, Lord, when there's situations that are just hard to get through. This one with Daniel is pretty life-threatening. Lots of us aren't experiencing that sort of thing right now. But, Lord, life is still has its difficulties. And so we pray that you would give us wisdom and grace uh, to walk with you, to acknowledge you, Lord, that you would make our path straight as we seek to follow you. And we thank you for the hope and the life that we have in you, Jesus, that you came and saved us even when we were far from you. So, Lord, would you help us to extend that same love and grace to those around us who don't yet know you. And we pray that you would stir that in our hearts afresh. Lord, we pray your blessing over our mothers today, grandmothers and stepmothers and foster mothers, aunts. Lord, we think of mothers who maybe aren't here that we wish they were. And, uh, Father, sometimes this day is full of joy, but also has a, a note of sadness as we think of those who aren't here. And Jesus, we pray for your comfort and your grace to fill the hearts of our families and to fill up the hearts of our mothers as they do such an important and difficult work that is so often uh, unnoticed. We pray that you would bring blessing and grace and peace today to our hearts. We thank you that you go before us into this week ahead. We bless you in your name. Amen.